Welcome to 76 West, a podcast of the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan, featuring talks from the JCC's Conversation Series, a marquee program of the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas. This podcast is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. Today we'll be listening to a discussion regarding the New York Times bestselling memoir, When Breath Becomes Air, an intimate look at how Dr. Paul Kalanithi, a 36-year-old neurosurgeon, dealt with his stage 4 lung cancer diagnosis. This powerful book has impacted millions of readers who, through Dr. Kalanithi's insightful writing, follow the journey of a doctor-turned-patient as he evaluates what it means to live. In this talk, Paul's widow and author of the book's epilogue, Dr. Lucy Kalanithi, shares Paul's story and the journey her life has taken since its publication. Dr. Lucy Kalanithi is interviewed by Rabbi Michal Springer, director of the Center for Pastoral Education at the Jewish Theological Seminary. This talk was recorded in front of a live audience on April 5th, 2017, and was presented in conjunction with the JCC's groundbreaking end-of-life initiative, What Matters? Caring Conversations About End-of-Life. Good evening. I'm Michal. I'm Lucy. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Thanks for having me. So exciting. So I... uh, Gonna let my heart stop racing for a little. Um, I want to start by thanking you. What you've done in being here and in talking about your story with Paul, and what Paul's done in his book, is this incredible integration of living and learning and teaching. That is so beautiful and is such an act of generosity. And I just want to thank you. Thanks. Thank you. I want to start with Paul's voice. It's so gorgeous, down to earth, thoughtful, honest. And one of the things that I really loved is this sense that he'd been grappling, grappling with these questions of meaning from an earliest, his earliest ages. This wasn't something that he came on because he had this diagnosis, but really had organized his whole life around figuring out what the meaning of life is in a very concrete way. I love the nuclear, the... Uh, neuro side of it as well Mm -hmm. as the literature side of it. I'm wondering um, if you can talk about the transition from Paul being a doctor to his being a doctor patient and what you understand to be at the heart of what you both learned in the process of that transition. Sure. Um, And I'm always like, 100% 100% terrified that someone's going to ask me, what's the meaning of life? Like, when I show up <laughs> with something like this, it's like, ooh, if your husband writes a book about the meaning of life, it's like, ooh. Um, so it was, uh, so for people who haven't read the book, my husband, Paul, was uh, um, entering his final year of training in neurosurgery at Stanford when he was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. And he lived for 22 months after the diagnosis, went back to work as a neurosurgeon for the first year of that. Um, and we had a baby during that time, which I'm sure we'll get into. But um, prior to becoming a neurosurgery resident and meeting me as a medical student, he had studied uh, 
um, history and philosophy of science and medicine and English literature. Um, and had thought maybe he would end up in a philosophy department or a literature department and sort of surprised himself by banging down the door of a medical school, um, having become very interested in mortality as sort of an intellectual philosophical challenge, um, and then wanted to be a physician and sort of be right at the heart of helping people think about their own mortality and their suffering and being a witness to that. Um, and learning about that um, even, and then became a neurosurgeon partly because he was really interested in mind-brain. Um, but it was interesting because for the past six years, he'd been a neurosurgery resident learning how to operate and learning how to talk patients through risks and benefits and, you know, having a sense of these big upheavals in people's lives, um, whether it was tumors or trauma or um, aneurysms or whatever, that day-to-day -day work. Um, but his body started changing and he started losing weight and having night sweats and becoming pretty ill over the space of about three or so months. Um, and then had a chest x-ray with his primary care doctor that showed nodules in the chest, in the lungs. And so, um, especially for two doctors, when you put the symptoms together with that x-ray and you're like, I hope it's disseminated tuberculosis, wouldn't that be great? You it was terrifying, you know, to to know that the, that diagnosis is upon us, that really likely he has, um, you know, metastatic cancer. And he, you'll, I think you'll think this is interesting. We um, got ready to go to the hospital, like to make that actual pivot um, from, you know, entering the hospital that he's been working in as a doctor and then entering it knowing that you are now a patient. And um, as we were packing up our stuff for the hospital and I'm getting like the insurance card and the phone chargers and stuff to pack in the bag, he actually packed three books. Um, and he hadn't read a decent book in a really long time. He'd been reading, you know, anatomy textbooks and things like that. But he packed um, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis and Being in Time by Heidegger uh, and a novel called Cancer Ward by Solzhenitsyn. So this little like amulet stack of books to take with him sort of across, you know, literature and philosophy and um, religion. And he did, I don't even think he opened them when he was there, but like the fact of, it was sort of this real statement to me. I have a iPhone photo of the books on the hospital, you know, side table. And it was just so striking to see, you know, when he crosses this threshold, it's not a medical textbook that is sitting there. It's this, it's these books, you know, so that um, his, his orientation to his own, um, I don't know, structuring of what was happening to him, like stepped back in a big way. Um, and I think writing the manuscript for When Breath Becomes Air, which happened in the last year of Paul's life, um, was also a way of sort of like shaping the narrative of what was, what was happening or like being able to somehow interact with it in, um, I don't know, words and ideas and not just um, pain or fear or hope. Like, it, I don't know. Maybe there's another question in there. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> no, to, to have his voice be heard in it and mm -hmm. not just to be passive. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, how... Could you talk about how his relationship to death changed when he realized that his body had cancer? 
Yeah, sure. Um, it's funny because I almost feel like his relationship to death didn't change as much as his relationship to like uncertainty and like tolerating uncertainty uh, and identity. Like those were the most painful things I think were like the upheaval in certainty and the upheaval in identity. Um, he had this sort of surprising um, ability to accept the fact of having a mortal body. And like, I'll just give two examples because they were so striking to me. Um, like the fact that we're mortal is so obvious. We all can say it and we all know it. But the two things Paul said, one was, um, we went to his college reunion, like a 15 year college reunion when um, he was really pretty sick. Uh, it was a few months before he died. And he makes a joke in the memoir where he says, you know, people are saying, see you at the 25th. And it's probably rude to say, well, probably not. And later we were talking about it and he's like, it doesn't, he sort of made the joke. And then he's like, it just feels a little bit like, I said, doesn't make you feel so sad. You know, you can see these people congregating into the future and you're probably not there. And he said, it's exactly the same as if someone said at your college reunion, see you at the 200th, and you'd think, probably not. And it's like there's not pain around that feeling, right? Um, it, I just thought that was really interesting. And, and um, yeah, I have another example, too, where um, he was looking at a CAT scan the second time that his cancer progressed. So when your cancer progresses, it's almost like the pain of diagnosis again. Like I was diagnosed and then I was doing okay. And then I'm officially now not doing okay again. And he writes in the book about looking at the CT scan and seeing this new tumor growing. And then like in parentheses, he quotes T.S. Eliot and says, you know, I'm looking at the scan and he says, but at my back in a cold blast, I hear the rattle of bones and a chuckle spread from ear to ear. And he's talking about a skeleton and a skull. And to be like the doctor looking at the CAT scan and then like reflect it back onto you and your own body and your own mortal body. I just like, I can, I can only like touch it a little bit with my mind, you know, but I feel like he learned to live in that place. Um, you know, and to somehow be okay with that. And I think I can, I flip in and out of that, you know. I guess we all do. Yeah. It's really unfathomable until you've been in that place. Right. I think that's part of the power of his book, that he wants to share as much as he can of that experience. Right. And I've been thinking that, he, he wants to equip us, you more than any of us, but all of us mm -hmm. in his wanting to publish this, to equip us somehow to be able to, to do that toggle. Right. So when, one of the people, when he was <laughs> like working on the book deal said, it's going to be such an inspirational book. And he, he said, I don't think of myself as an inspirational writer. I think of myself more as an expirational writer. <laughs> <laughs> Great. That's great. You. <laughs> um, so I, I want to talk about meaning, which mm -hmm. is one of Paul's big themes. There's this very powerful 
passage where he writes about the first deaths that he was mm -hmm. part of as a medical student. And um, these two premature twins die. And he writes, what possible sense could be made? What words were there for comfort? And the, the simplicity of those questions and his willingness to ask those questions um, is connected to um, his boldness in not shying away from what's impossible to understand, um, which so many of us distance ourselves from, but he's very intimate with it. So I was very curious when he was diagnosed that um, he doesn't ask those questions, at least not in the book. And what he says is, I found myself the sheep, lost and confused. So I'm, I'm curious about the, the movement from the questions that he'll ask for the twins who died and for the other patients whose lives are cut short, and then for himself, a very different tone. What, what do you think that's about? Oh, um, I'm not even totally sure because... Um, I think he was also asking the, the other ones too. Um, I guess I have two thoughts. One is, um, I do think you're right that he wasn't, um, I like angry or bitter about it. I think that was part of what you just touched on. You know, he talks about how he said, I wouldn't have said, why me? It was more like, why not me? Um, but I think that sort of vulnerability, like the sheep thing I really saw in his relationship with his doctor in a way that I really wouldn't have expected um, for, you know, a young male neurosurgeon who's sort of like large and in charge and like on top of stuff. And then when he's the patient, the anticipation for the appointments with her and the way in which he hung on her wor words and then parsed them later and it was like it really was like he was relying on her for much more than the medical expertise instead to like you know chart the course in a way i don't i don't he was just really hungry for what she could give so um i guess that's one i don't think it's quite the answer to the question you asked necessarily but um i think he was he was sort of uh moving in and out of each of those probably mhm mm yeah. Well, I, I have a related question, which has to do with um, his doctor, Emma. Mm -hmm. And um, early, he wants numbers about yeah. statistics, about survival. And she says no, and he gets pissed off. Uh -huh. And then there was a, just a great moment in the book of what? Uh -huh. um, and she focuses on values, and he really takes that on for himself. And of course, it's totally consistent with where he's always been. Mm -hmm. And he says, it was up to me to find my values. So I'm curious if you could talk about what it was like for Paul to do this work of finding his yeah. values, especially as he talks about how they keep shifting in the course of time. But um, were there any conflicts around that? What was the sort of concrete reality of finding those values? Yeah. Um, so I think by far the hardest portion of Paul's illness was the first couple months after diagnosis because, um, 
like when he's writing about it in the prologue, he says the future I had imagined evaporated. And it really was exactly like that. It was like, it made me realize how much of your own, how much of your identity is totally linked to who you will be, not necessarily who you are, whether it's like having a child or going through your career or school, um, your projected self like reflects back onto you all the time um, and feels like who you are. So when he's just about to become an attending neurosurgeon and then is diagnosed with terminal cancer, it's like, who truly, who am I now? And what, what am I? Um, and so initially it was just this real upheaval in, um, you know, like not just the physical piece, but the really um, like deep identity. Like it was incredibly disorienting. And um, for me, it ha- that same thing happened interestingly, like after Paul died. Um, but uh, as it ties in with the prognosis, um, you know, and I have to give Paul's oncologist some credit because she actually did talk about prognosis with his parents and then with us at the end. And she also knew that we knew um, generally the prognosis he had. And I think finding his values was really tied up in not necessarily exact numbers about prognosis, but understanding um, at least the best case, the worst case, and then the most likely case. And um, for him, it became about um, like pinning his identity on what the most important things were that he could kind of do in the likely to best case. So when he was first diagnosed, his real, um, the thing that was so devastating was like, I'm not a neurosurgeon anymore and I never will be again. So what am I? And that was its own pain apart from like actually thinking that you're going to die soon. Um, and then when he realized that the first treatment was relatively easy to endure, it was like one pill a day chemo. And perhaps he would live a few years or maybe even out toward a decade. Um, he decided to go back to work because it was like, well, if I really do survive that relatively long and I don't become a neurosurgeon, I'm going to be really upset about it. So I'm gonna, that is who I am again, and I'm going to try to do it. And so that was what he did for a year. And then incidentally, sort of really fortuitously, accidentally got a op-ed in the New York Times after writing this reflective essay that he shot off to a t- couple friends. And one wrote back and said, your essay needs some work. I don't know if you could actually publish it. And the other one wrote back and said, I forwarded it to the op-ed desk at the New York Times. <laughs> and, they, and they published it like verbatim two weeks later or something. And um, it's like the whole reason that this book even exists. I, I cannot believe the serendipity. It's just because then when the treatment failed and he had um, ultimately one more year left, but much more arduous treatment and certainly was too debilitated to work as a surgeon, no matter how much time he had left, he suddenly had this like new swelling identity as a writer. And the writing was um, uh, incredibly useful, emotional tool, and even tool in our marriage actually to talk around the manuscript. Um, so it was a, I like what you said about how it's shifting. Like it really was kind of a moving target. It wasn't like, I'm sick and so now I get my head around that and it's okay. It was like, you know, who am I now and what's important to me now and who am I now? And, um, you know, he said, he has a sentence in the book that says like, give me 10 years, I'd get back to treating diseases. Give me one, I'd write a book. Give me three months, I'd just spend time with family. And that's like almost what he did exactly. Sort of interesting because he had 
said that initially, but it all, like, the gears were always kind of, like, adjusting. Seventy Six West is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. In 1934, Lewis and Lillian Zabar opened a shop along Broadway at 80th Street on New York's Upper West Side. Lewis was a stickler for quality, roasting his own coffee and personally visiting smokehouses to sample and inspect fish, rejecting far more than he accepted. Today, Lewis's principles and practices continue to guide Zabar's. Respect the customer. Never, ever stint on quality. Offer fair value. And last but not least, keep searching for the new and wonderful. Be sure to visit Zabar's store on 80th and Broadway, or visit Zabar's.com for mouth-watering specialties like bagels, babka, rugelach, smoked fish, and of course, world-famous caviar. Zabar's ships to all 48 contiguous United States plus Alaska, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico, so there's no reason your friends can't enjoy the fresh, homemade taste of Zabar's any day of the week. You said that you went through your own values shift mm -hmm. after Paul died. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean... I was just incredibly anxious after Paul. I knew that I would be sad, um, but I hadn't realized how anxious. Um, and I think some of that was my own career had like just been starting to grow. And then Paul got really sick and I shifted immensely to thinking about him and being a caregiver. And then we had our child during the same time. So there was sort of varieties of family leave. It was like I was on maternity leave and he was on disability leave. And then I was like family medical leave. And um, this is like this, and then popped out the end of it and he had just died. And our daughter was eight months old. And what I wanted to be doing, which was like engaging with these ideas and then practically speaking, completing the book and helping it get out was really different from what my previous day to day had been in medicine. And so it took a while to just tie the threads together. Um, and I'm still seeking career counseling if anybody would like to talk about it. But it's like, um, yeah, it was just sort of this, uh, um, yeah, like reshaping what my actual purpose was and day-to-day -day was, um, was very different. It wasn't like, oh, and then I popped back into my old thing. And I think that's true for a lot of people who've, you know, are a caregiver for somebody. Their, their life is, becomes a different life. Yeah. you know, during or after. So while we're talking about your life after Paul, kind of after Paul, mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm curious if you could talk about what it's like to grieve for him mm -hmm. when he's not physically present, but you're so immersed yeah. in his book and his work and yeah. your own voice bringing to the world these ideas that you're passionate about. Yeah. Um, it's overall been really great. And it teaches me a thing about grief, which is, um, I think I'm much more able to sit with or be open to asking, um, about somebody's grief or even, you know, somebody whose mom died three years ago. It's like, oh, I'd love to hear about your mom. And to me, I'm like, I understand that it's like, oh yeah, I'd love to talk about my mom. Like that's, that person is still looms very large in your experience, um, in your life. 
even though they're not there, at least for me. Um, and I feel like Paul's love sustains me now still, um, even though he's not here and he hasn't been here for two years. And so the fact of sort of being forced in a way, um, but in an okay way to do a book tour for Paul and talk about him and talk about things that were important to him initially felt like an obligation and something that I would do out of love and I'll, I'll do anything Random House tells me to do. And then instead has felt so good, um, a way to just be really real with people and a way to connect to my own feelings and then get to share them and get responses back. So um, I sort of feel like it, it bursts a little bit of a bubble around me, um, around a thing that's actually sometimes very isolating but doesn't necessarily, you know, in some ways nobody could take away the loneliness you have, but in other ways it's a, there's a bubble you can get through. Yeah, well, that seems like the right segue to talk about having a child together while Paul is dying. Speaking of bursting a bubble, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I know that there's a passage in the book that you thought oh, yeah. you might read about that. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of crazy to have a child, but it... Um, was it? I mean, yeah, kind of. I think I was really worried about even practical stuff like postpartum depression. My sister had postpartum depression twice, you know, really intensely and has written about it. And so it was sort of like, if I'm depressed for, if I were to get depressed and then that's four months and Paul lives for eight months, it's like the months were so important and we had a ton of help, but I just was like, this is, um, we're entering into this knowing that having a child adds this whole other level of uncertainty and pain to your life. And, you know, can we really add that? And um, I ended up reading Andrew Solomon's book, Far From the Tree. I don't know if people have read that, but it's beautiful. And it's about, you know, families in which a child is very different from the family. And there may be stress or strife around that. But the parents, almost to a person, say, I would give anything to take away my child's pain but I'm so, I am such a deeper, more resilient person for having parented this child. Um, and I wouldn't want to take that away. And something about that was um, really fortifying. And it made me think like, you know, nobody picks up and decides to have a child because they think it's going to be easy. So um, I think we just were in that group in the end. Um, but Paul, and we have a ton of help, but Paul said this really beautiful thing that crystallized it, I think, for me. Um, said, uh, both of us yearning to be parents, we each thought of the other. Lucy hoped I had years left, but understanding my prognosis, she felt that the choice, whether to spend my remaining time as a father, should be mine. What are you most afraid of or sad about? She asked me one night as we were lying in bed. Leaving you, I told her. Will having, <clears throat> will having a newborn distract from the time we have together, she asked. Don't you think having to say goodbye to a child will make dying more painful? Wouldn't it be great if it did? I said. So that was kind of like, oh, okay, I get it. That's, that makes sense to me yeah. now. Let's not detach from life while we still yeah. have it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. All right, well, I want to shift into something painful in a different way. Mm 
Um, this is my, this is the question that I've been most nervous about. This morning when I was going over my questions with my husband, I started to cry when I asked this question. I already told Lucy that. Um, and it's about the conflict in your marriage, um, which Paul writes about, and then you wrote about very beautifully in the epilogue, um, affirming that you're glad that he wrote about it. And that's part of the living your life and teaching from your life, which most of us hide that part of ourselves. You know, it'd be easy to edit that out. You, yeah. you, you did have the editing capacity there. You yeah. could have just said, you know, Paul put this mm -hmm. in, but I don't think he really wanted to, but he didn't do that. Um, and one of the lines in the book that was most moving to me was when he quotes you, um, when you happen to see him um, looking at a screen where he's looking up statistics on cancer among people in their 30s and 40s. And you say to him, can you tell me why you aren't confiding in me? Um, it's just such a deeply emotional moment. Mm -hmm. And I've been thinking about the, the fear and the denial in that moment. And I'm wondering, looking back, how you understand that hiding and if from where you are now, what you would have said to yourself and Paul then? Oh, huh. Yeah. I don't know. I, um, I don't know what I would have said. Um, I mean, I feel like I would have said it's going to be okay, but I also didn't want it to be okay in the way it ended up being okay. Um, yeah, that was such a painful time and a very painful moment, um, like you said. And um, we'd both been working really hard, and especially Paul, who, you know, if you're a neurosurgery resident, you're lucky if you work eight hours, 80 hours a week. That's like the absolute minimum. And so you barely have time to eat food, let alone, um, you know, tend to your relationships or like to actually take care of your body. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, I think some of that was actual pressure. Like, I remember a few weeks before Paul was diagnosed and he really wasn't feeling well and we were supposed to go on a camping trip, but his back hurt so much that maybe he couldn't sleep on the ground, so he didn't go. And his mom said, um, Pubby, his nickname was Pubby, Pubby, the most important thing is to take care of your health. And he said, Mom, the most important thing is to get an academic faculty job. <laughs> and it was like, that was also a painful moment, actually. I was sort of like oh man, but like, what if something really bad is happening? But you have these like things that are all happening in your life at the same time. And you do like your priorities do shift around. And I think, you know, when you're a doctor, especially a resident, you don't have like work-life balance on a day-to-day -day basis. You have it on like a much longer time horizon. So those months just weren't, it just wasn't there. And, um, and then like the denial thing, I wonder about, because um, I hadn't really thought about it as denial per se, although like in some way, how could it not be, um, you know, to like space your appointments out or not have time for your appointments. But again, it's like the pressure. And somebody after Paul died said, um, I wonder if he was just really in denial or I wonder if he almost even subconsciously was like, well, if this is that, it's already too far. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Cause that sounds also kind of crazy, but, um, I don't know. I mean, I think both of us had a suspicion about his, him being really sick. Um, 
you sort of get a sense when you're a doctor, like people say when you're an intern, what you really learn during that one year of internship is to say sick or not sick. You can look at a patient and be like, not too sick. This person's sick. And it's just like something about your intuition. Um, Paul was sick. You know, I don't know. That was, it was hard. I think uh, part of the reason that that moment makes me cry mm-hmm. is because it captures how hard it is to put your greatest fears into words. Yeah. Yeah. And the hardest person it is to tell is the person you love the most. Yeah. And so at the moment when you most need to be comforted, it's hardest to get that comfort because you're so afraid to even say what it is you're afraid of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so right after Paul was diagnosed, almost literally the first thing he said was, I want you to remarry after I die, which was like so generous. I mean, just like ridiculously generous and also heartbreaking but also sort of set this tone, which is very different from that tone, right? It's like a real pivot, but sort of set the tone of, like in that one sentence, he's saying, I love you. I want to take care of you. I know I'm going to die. It's okay to say it out loud. Like the whole, that's all in the one sentence, right? So I do think the saying it out loud part is incredibly important. And then and then you're not isolated from each other. Um, Uh, there's this woman, Bonnie Adario, who runs a lung cancer foundation near where we live. And she says, people come to her and say, I'm super isolated. I'm so afraid of hurting my spouse, but we're not talking about it. And she tells people like literally sit down at your kitchen table and then go around and everybody just say what you're most afraid of. Because I think that's what you said in your question, right? Like you're so afraid that you like, you're so afraid you can't even say it. Um, But I think you, you, it gets a little bit lighter or just different, maybe not lighter. But it's like, I agree with that advice, you know? I think that's what saved us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have, I guess I have two questions that I want to make sure I get to. Um, One is um, in the epilogue, there's, you capture this sense of rush yeah, decision-making that has to happen in a rush. And I know that you had done a lot of advanced planning, and I'm wondering about the way in which this advanced planning um, got reconfigured mm-hmm. and revisited in the rush of actual decision-making as things unfolded in real time. Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, I mean, being two physicians... Um, we both had advanced directives. And actually, I had said, we hadn't before Paul got sick, but we, when he was sick, I said, you know, we should do your advanced directive. And he said, we should do your advanced directive. <laughs> I was like, touche. <laughs> so um, we, we had talked, you know, I think the thing that that's interesting in about an advanced directive and that's, um, you know, like relevant to the conversation that's happening with what matters, obviously, is it's much less about the paperwork and much more about the conversation around it. Like what's important to you and, you know, when you're dying, what's important to you? What do you think will be important to you at that time? Um, And then it's like doing the paperwork doesn't feel like some boring thing. It literally feels like a vow, you know, like I am the person who will be there and I will speak for you if I need to speak for you. I mean, it's like, 
it's actually like pretty romantic stuff, but it's like, um, and that's how it felt. Like that's how it felt. Cause it was so real. It was not at all theoretical when we were like talking about it. And as physicians, we had also both witnessed, um, you know, multiple levels of medical intervention and situations in which patients were getting care that we felt like may have been providing, you know, may have been giving them more suffering than benefit, which I think is sort of like one of the moral and identity crises of modern American healthcare, you know, is like, how do we weigh the technology we have against what people actually want? And I think right now um, we're falling to one extreme. So anyway, Paul got sick really fast at the end. Um, uh, he was sort of choosing between hospice and a clinical trial, which felt like a really artificial choice that I wish patients didn't have to make. And um, entered the trial, but while he stopped his um, chemo treatment, he got really sick. He sort of had a flare um, from withdrawing that treatment and suddenly couldn't breathe. And we knew that he likely had weeks probably, but then very quickly he really couldn't breathe and I called 911. So we went to Stanford Hospital and um, he was uh, relatively shortly admitted to the intensive care unit on a breathing mask, um, not a ventilator, not with a tube um, into his throat um, or windpipe, but um, like a mask that goes around your face and helps breathe. And even despite that, uh, his situation and his condition were worsening. And that is like the a real, I mean, that's a box on the advanced directive, right? Like, would you wanna have a breathing machine or would you not wanna have a breathing machine? And the, all tied up in that is like, well, what else is happening at that time and how long would I actually be on the machine? And, um, you know, even having a sense of that was challenging as two doctors, you know, he's incredibly sick, but could it be reversed? And what he really wants to do is keep writing his manuscript and be with our family. So if we can get that, then yeah, we want to do that. But if we can't, then that's not worth it. And the thing that was so helpful for me and for him is like the, what I just said about like, if we can do this, it's worth it. And if we can't do this, not worth it. Like that, that was the information that we really needed. And um, Paul thankfully was lucid during this time. And I looked back and was like, thankfully, thank goodness he was lucid. Like he was really a participant and a leader um, in what was happening that day. But um, once it sort of shook out how sick he was, it wasn't worth the risk um, to go on the breathing machine because the most important thing was to spend time with our daughter. So the, sh the hospital team totally shifted gears. Um, and instead it wasn't like, what's his creatinine and what's the PCO2 in his blood? And, you know, should we call the anesthesia team to intubate? It was like, is an infant allowed in the ICU? And that was like, that was the measure of quality of care. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was very, um, uh, like confusing. I mean, even for me as a doctor, it's like when it's actually your family and when it's actually your, your body, it's, it is confusing. And so then I think, um, it, it was really important to have the guidance of the team there to say like, we really want to know what's happening. And like, we're willing, you know, there's like the battle metaphor, you know, in medicine of like, we're going to fight it. We're going to beat it. We're going to like keep fighting. But it's like, it just depends what you're fighting for. 
you know. Okay, so you bring me to my last question. Um, and I speak as a chaplain and as a rabbi. I loved this line where Paul said, uh, had I been more religious in my youth, I might have become a pastor, for it was the pastoral role I'd sought. Um, so he was extraordinarily articulate about the place of soul and meaning in the practice of medicine, really beautiful. And um, he writes about profound moments of awakening throughout the book. So I would love for you to end by talking about your vision for awakened medicine mm -hmm. and awakened living. And the meaning of life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I spared you that one. <laughs> I mean, this is like the thing that feels really compelling to me that sort of pulls me into the future um, as I'm rebuilding my own life is thinking about that idea. I've never heard anybody say awakened medicine before tonight, um, but thank you for the phrase awakened medicine because I think that applies to both patients and caregivers and healthcare um, professionals. You know, I think like the there's a hunger within practicing medicine for um, having it be a really human endeavor. And there's a lot of cultural and financial and other factors that like press on you. Um, with regard to that thing, the pastoral role, um, seeking the pastoral role, I mean, I guess like at the core, it's that's spir a spiritual guide, right? Like what's that? I don't know. How do you define that role? Yeah. Spiritual guidance. Yeah. Um, so if you... I mean, when you're in those interactions in healthcare and when you're, you know, if your family member is dying, that is not a medical problem. It's a human spiritual problem. So I think um, in some ways it's a mistake to treat it like a medical problem. And um, there's a fair amount of stuff in healthcare that's like that. Or even if it's something super simple, like, you know, um, I don't know whether or not you need antibiotics for your cough or whatever. It's like, well, it's not, I don't care whether I get a pack or not. I care whether I sleep well the night before my presentation at work. Like it's all about like, what is the, what's your real goal in your day-to-day -day or in your long-term life? And then how do you match your healthcare big and small to that? Um, and to me, that's the exciting part of practicing medicine. It's the, um, you know, it's not just a, it's a human body, right? the human body. So I don't know. I don't know the answer, but I right now I like talking about it. So that's a, and I love talking to you. It's been an incredible honor to be able to have this conversation. Thanks. With you. Thank you. That was Dr. Lucy Kalanithi talking to Rabbi Michal Springer. Our podcasts are produced by Megan Whitman and me, Eric Winnick. Our editor is Matt Temkin. Our music was written and performed by Peril Wolf. The voice of Zabars is Leah Rosensweet. To find out more about What Matters Caring Conversations About End of Life, visit whatmattersny.org. Please give us a rating and review on iTunes, and if you can, share this episode with your friends. If you're just joining us, welcome, and be sure to subscribe for future episodes.